Okay, good evening everyone, I'm Shimon Felix. I think I've met some of you before, when I've substituted on other occasions. Um, now we will be looking at Parshat Vayichi. Maybe we can come over here. At Parshat Vayichi. Um, we have a sheet here. I might want to look at something else. I have a couple of Chumashim here. But it's going to be very short if I do so. We can do it by pet. Okay. Um, the first thing I want to look at is, is this very interesting feature of the Parsha. Uh, we'll see it in the, in the first Rashi, a very well-known feature. Let's take a look right at the top of the page. The Parsha begins, Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Yitzrayim Shva Esrei Shana Vayichi Yimei Yaakov Shnei Chayav Sheva Shanim Varbaim Uma'at Shana Okay, that's the Pasuk. It's really not of much interest to us right now because what we're going to look at is uh, is this Rashi? Just let me close this. Is this Rashi? Which says this: Vechi Yaakov, Lama Parsha Stuma. Why is this Parsha what's called Stuma? Now I'm sure many of you know what this is talking about. Some of you might not, so we'll go over it. As you know, the Torah is the most relevant way to divide the Torah up. The most important way to divide the Torah up is by Parshas. In other words, Prakim, everyone knows. Who made, who made up Prakim? You know, Perek, Aleph, Beis, Gimel, the Goyim, right? That's like famous, no? The Goyim made up Prakim. It's a Goyish thing, and you shouldn't use them. No, you can, you can use them. It's a Jewish tradition to use the Prakim, you know, when you want a footnote or note something. But the Prakim were made up by the church, I understand. If it turns out that I'm wrong, this is very embarrassing because it's on tape. But this is what I've always understood. That the, and some of the prakim are really poorly arranged. Like there's a new parak in the middle of a, of a thing, um, which proves that Goyim must be responsible. But that's my understanding. That the prakim, you know, parak Zayin, Chavtet, Lamed Aleph, you know, those prakim. Forget about them. And the real way to divide the Torah up is by parshas. Now, I never remember the numbers, like 246? Anybody know? No? Okay. Parshas are like paragraphs. In other words, in a Sefer Torah, you have uh, words, all, you know, there's no commas, there's no breaks in between the psukim, it's all like a block of print, so to speak. And then you have a gap, an empty space. And there are two kinds of empty gaps, empty faces you can have. You can have, like, you have a line, a line, a line. Then you have, like, a line starts, and then a gap in the middle of the line, and then words continue at the end of the line. Right? What's that called? A parsha stuma. A, a, like a sealed off new paragraph. In other words, there's words at the beginning of the gap, words at the end of the gap, and there's just like a gap, like a paragraph. And the other kind of way of doing it is that you have lines, 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 then you have a line begins, and then you have a gap of empty space till the end of the line, and the next line starts with the new text. And that's called the Parsha Ptucha, an open, because it's more, it goes to the end, right? And altogether there are 240 six, I think, paragraphs like that in the Torah. Some are very short. How short could the shortest one possibly be? A pasuk. A pasuk, right? There are some where one pasuk and then you have gap. One pasuk, gap, right? And some are just a few pasukim and some are long. You know, some go on for many, many pasukim and then you have a gap and it's a new parsha. Um... And, and that's really the way the Torah divides itself. You know, you want to, when you want to read the Torah, you really should, I guess, read a parsha and then stop and think about it. Because the Torah, the tradition, by having these gaps, is telling you that's a paragraph, that's a piece. Think about that. Just, this is not a topic. What's the other important thing to know about how the Torah is divided up? Two other things. The, the psukim, obviously, the self-pasuk. And the etnachtas. In every pasuk there's like a comma. In the middle of the pasuk it looks like a tuning fork. It looks like a, a wishbone. It looks like a wishbone. It's in every pasuk. Some will say, no, there's one without. I think it's on every pasuk. And uh, it's like a comma. So just about every pasuk in the Torah is sort of two halves. Okay, so those are important reading tips. So parsha is an important reading tip. Now, 
another, the, the way we normally use the word parsha is like precious, noach, lech lecha, those are parshas, right? The parshat And that's true, those are parshas too. Um, and usually, in the Torah, when you get to your next parsha, like noach, after breshit, or lech lecha, or, you know, Next week, Shmalt, after we finish Breshit, there's a gap. There's a big gap. And you see, oh, it's a new Sefer. It's a new Pasha, or at the end of a Sefer, an even bigger gap. It's a new Sefer. And you can tell it's a new Pasha. Vayichi is different. Vayichi, there's no gap whatsoever. Last week's Pasha, Vayigash, ends. And then the very next word is Vayichi Yaakov, Baritz There's no gap whatsoever. Which is very abnormal. It's abnormal in the fact that that's Vayigash and that's Vayichi. And Jews usually divide up the parshas. And it's even abnormal in terms of the paragraphing system that I mentioned earlier because it really is a new topic. Now, you know, we finished that story of Yaakov coming down to Egypt and Yosef uh, greeting him, you know, everything that happened in the end of Vayigash last week. And now we start a, what really feels like a whole new paragraph and in fact a whole new parsha. And yet it's Stuma. There's no gap whatsoever, okay? If, if this was, you know, a different setting, we'd open up the Aaron Kaddish, right? We'd pick, take out the Sevatar and show everybody. We'll take out a Tikkun. We could even, we probably could do that. But we're not gonna, you have to take my word for it. And when you get home, you can go look if you like in the Tikkun, okay? So now, I don't know, what, what would be your explanation for why this is the case? What would be like a simple explanation for why there's no gap whatsoever, no paragraphing between Vayigash and Vayichi? What would be like a really simple explanation? They're really one Pasha. You know, we today divide Vayichi, but maybe once it wasn't a separate Pasha. That's a simple explanation, right? It's not, it's not the end of the world. They don't shoot you for saying things like that. Not where I come from. So, so you know, one could come up with a, like a like a mundane, like a not so exciting explanation. You know, some sort of technical, that, or, or, or even get a little more clever and say, well, since they're so closely connected in the conceptually, Yaakov coming down to Egypt and then dying in Egypt, so the Torah puts them together to let you know it's a retzef, it's, a, um, it's all one long story, even though Shabbos, Number one, you say by you lane by Yigash, and Shabbos number two, you lane by Yechi. They really do go together in some conceptual way. You can say that, right? So those are like simple explanations for this strange calligraphal situation, right? But Rashi brings a different explanation. And we're going to take a look at Rashi's explanation. So you're all with me. Now we have a question about this Pasha business and the Stuma. It's totally sealed up. There's no opening whatsoever between Vayigash and Vayichi. They just run one right, in, one right into the other. Alright? Yes. Of all the parishes we call like Pasha Rashabu in the Torah, only place where there's any uh, deviation at all, as far as I can think, from the normal having a big space between parishes. Okay. So Rashi goes on. Lama Pasha Zustuma, why is the Pasha sealed up like that, connected immediately to Vaigash? Lefisha, Kevansha Niftarya Akovavinu, Nistmu Enehem Vilibam Shel Yisrael, Nitzarat Hashiabud. Shaitrilud Shabdam. Stop. Rashi says, I'll tell you why the Pasha is Stuma. Lefisha, because once Yaakov died, which is what the Pasha is about, certainly the first section, the major section of the Pasha, the first three quarters, is about Yaakov's death, his deathbed blessings to his children, his deathbed statements to his children, and then of course you have the death of Yosef, and you know, the end of, the end of Bereshit, but the bulk of the Pasha is about the death of Yaakov. So once he dies, Nistemu, you hear that? Lama Pasha Zu Stuma, it's the same word. Right? You ever have to call a plumber? Why do you call a plumber? We have a blockage. Right? It's, it's blacked up. Right? Because when Yaakov Avinu died, Nistemu were blocked up. The eyes and hearts shall Yisrael, the Israelites, Mitzarat Hashiabut, from the from the troubles and afflictions of being oppressed and being um, subjugated, being subjugated. 
because they started to subjugate them. Now this is news. You know, we're going to talk about the nistemu in a minute, the hearts and the, and the, the eyes and the hearts in a minute. But first, the, the, the basic premise that upon the death of Yaakov, they started to, uh, to subjugate them. Who's they? The Egyptians. So this is news to us, that upon the death of Yaakov, the Egyptians began to subjugate the Jews. This is not what the biblical narrative tells us. The biblical narrative has Yaakov dying, then Yosef dying, and all his brothers dying, and Kol Hador, the whole generation dying, and then we get to Shemot, and we tell you again that they're all dead, right? And then there's a new Paro, a new king, a new Melech, Shelo Yadat Yosef, and he starts the whole thing. Right? Let's be clever with these Jews and let's subjugate them. There's a to the biblical narrative, Yaakov dies and years pass and his children die, and only then, new regime, the Jews begin to be subjugated. So, that clearly what Rashi's talking about. That's number one. Number two, let's go back. What does Rashi say? That this, the, the stumanis, this blocked upness of Vayichi, doesn't have room between it and Vayigash, is a kind of a Almost like a pun, or like a hint, that something was nistam. At this time, something was nistam. Blocked up. What was blocked up? The eyes and hearts of the Jewish people. What locked it up? The tsarot of the Shiabut, which began at that stage when Yaakov died. So there are a lot of interesting ideas here, right? The, the fact that they began to be subjugated at this time. I said a moment ago is, where does that come from? Um, the nistemu enehem v'libam. What does that mean exactly? When you're subjugated, what happens to you? You get up in the morning, they whip you, they send you to go build a pyramid, they whip you some more, they uh, give you a little crummy food to eat, like a matzah, and then you go to sleep for a little while. Then you wake up again. So what does nistemu enehem v'libam mean? There's what kind of analysis of shiabud is that, is, is what I'm asking. What kind, well, I don't want to answer There's a lot of rhetorical questions. Then we'll talk. What kind of, what kind of, of you know, what does Rashi mean? Why is that a feature of Shia Bud? Why is that a feature worth the Torah hinting at with this stuma? And now the last thing I want to say is sort of the first thing. I want to make sure we all understand the pun. It's like a pun. In other words, like a visual and verbal pun. You know, the Torah says, you know what I'll do? I'll do something called a parasha stuma. I'll have the parasha, you know, run on right after Vayigash. And that will make the reader go, stuma, stuma. Something must be stuma here. I wonder what it could be. I guess it's the eyes and hearts of the Jews who are now upon the death of Yaakov being subjugated by the Egyptians. And that blocks up their eyes and their hearts. Okay, you know, it's a, it would take me a long time to get that hint, you know. If all you told me was stuma, like, like you gave me charades. Stuma! No, not charades. Charades, you don't talk. Um, a different game, but with the same kind of idea. Stuma. And then I'm supposed to come up with, oh, oh, stuma. What does that make me think, you know? That's supposed to make me think, I guess the Jews began being subjugated this time. And I guess that the effect that had was this stima of their hearts and eyes. Strange? It's like a, a long, a big leap. Okay? Okay. Let's, let there's a davar acher, let's not do the davar acher. Okay? No, let's. Let's do the davar acher. Okay? Davar acher, another idea, as she says. I'll give you another one. Shebikesh ligalot et haketz libanav v'nistam, again, ding, 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 v'nistam mimeno. That he wanted to reveal the end of days the end of time to his children, and it was blocked off from him. Who's he who wanted to reveal? Yaakov. When did he want to reveal the end of time to his children? In a little bit, when he calls them all to his deathbed, right? He says, now go down please, which is Breshit Perk Memtet, Vayikra Yaakov, Banav, Vayomer, Heyasfu! Yaakov, a little while later, we skipped a bit, right? There's, uh, uh, he first blesses Ephraim and Menashe, Right? We skip that. And then he gets worse. His condition worsens. And he calls for all of the sons to come. But first he has a little audience. At the beginning of the parasha, he has a little audience with Yosef. And he says, do me a favor. I'll not bury any of Mitzrayim. Don't bury me in Egypt. Take me to 
to Marat HaMachpelah when I die, and then he sees a family Menashe, blesses them, the famous blessing, then Yosef goes home, and then they're called in again, oh, Yaakov's situation is worsened, his condition is worsened, and he says to them, Vayikra Yaakov Obanav, Vayomer Heasfu, Vagida Lechem Et Asher Yikra Etchem, Bacharit Hayamim. Come, gather around, and I'll tell you what's going to happen to you at the end of days. So it sounds like he wants to tell them what Rashi says, the Galot et HaKetz. Right? And then what does he say? He comes to Bishimu Yaakov, get together and listen to the sons of Jacob, Bishimu Yisrael Abichem, listen to your father Yisrael, and then the famous Reuven Bechoriata, Reuven, you're my firstborn, and this, everybody knows by heart? In school we have to learn this by heart. Nobody here went to the day school I went to? <laughs> Highline? Never went to Highline? In Highline, which is not a sport they play in Florida, the Hebrew Institute of Long Island, they made us learn Birchos Yaakov by heart. Uh, I also have a son who knows it by heart because it's his by mitzvah passion. Uh, so these Brachot of Yaakov, are they a revealing of the future to the Jewish people? You know the answer. You're about to say the right answer. I can see it on your face. Say it! Say it short. Say it in three words. Right. A little bit. Yafet. There's yes and no. I tell you, you have this look. Yes and no. You have that look. Yes and no. You know, there is a bit of looking forward. He talks about Judah, Yehuda's role with the rest of the people. Um, a whole bunch of stuff that is future oriented. But the normative understanding of the blessings that he gives to his children, this is not explaining what we would call the end of days. It, it falls far short of that. As you said, it's a lot about what they've done in the past, right? the first few, Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, it's all about their past peccadillos, in fact, things they've done wrong in the past. Um, and then with other sons and other, you know, good things they did in the past and things they'll do in the future. In other words, the normative understanding, and let's look now to Rashi, right to the left of this, I'll tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. Just the same phrase Rashi used in our first Rashi. Because she wanted to reveal the future to them, the end of days to them. He says it a little differently. And the presence of God went away from him. And he started to say other stuff. You know, so he said other things. You know, uh, I guess I'll use my, the other speech I had prepared. Right? He wanted to do what Rashi said he wanted to do. But, as Rashi the first one said, It was blocked off from him. In the latter, Rashi explains how is it blocked off from him. He, his prophecy went away. His connection to God, which would make him a prophet, which would make him able to see and tell what's going to happen in the future, went away. And so, okay, I'll go with my other speech. And, and that's what we have in Vayichi. Not what Yaakov wanted to do, a revealing of the future, but a kind of, as you said, I, I agree, a, a sort of review of who they are and what they're like and what they will be like as a result of their uh, character and their history. Nistam. It, he, that route was sealed to him, was denied him. Okay? So according to Rashi, the, the stumanis of Vayichi, right? It's supposed to hint to me this schema on the part of Yaakov. Right? So it's two things are blocked up. You could, you could, you know, you could be uh, um, uh, dichotomous. You could say it's one or the other. You have to go with one shot or the other shot. I don't like that. It's official. I officially don't like that. I like to put it all together. And, and whenever I see the Baruch and Rashi, I like to think that they complement, that they add, that they're not mutually exclusive. And so if we go in that direction, Rashi is saying, a couple of stimot happened here. And that's what the Torah is hinting at with this strange pagination, the way the page is arranged in a strange way. First thing, the hearts and eyes of the Jewish people were blocked up because of this subjugation that began. Second of all, in a little while... Well, actually, no, actually, sooner. Actually, Rashi's not chronological. Rashi's backwards chronologically. First, he talks about the stima that happened to the Jewish people once Yaakov dies. Then, he talks about the stima that happened to Yaakov on his deathbed, just before he died. So, it's actually backwards chronologically. I didn't think of that. Um, and that second stima, first chronologically, is that Yaakov had wanted to be more forthcoming to his children about the future, and that was denied him on his deathbed, and so he did something else. Are you all you're with it? 
Have we got it? Okay. Yes. You what? What's the thing? So let's go back a step, though. I want to, like, ask the question I think you just sort of tried to answer. So let, let me ask the question first. I, I want to now look at the whole Russia. I want to go back to this first statement about the blockage of their eyes and their hearts because of the subjugation. And let's, let's go step by step. Uh, what does it mean? Let, let's forget the question we asked. What subjugation? You tried to answer. There's a kind of a, a blockage of the way to Zion. The way back to Israel was blocked. But that's an answer. Before we get the answer, we have the question, what subjugation? They're not subjugated until much later with the mortar and the bricks and the building and the slavery. That's later. That's not right away when Jacob dies. What subjugation are we talking about? Let's leave that question aside. And I want to discuss the other piece of Rashi. The hearts and the eyes being blocked up because of the subjugation. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? You know, subjugation as a concept, we know what that means. You're a slave, you're a servant, you're a, you're a third-class citizen, you're a non-citizen, you're subjugated, you're oppressed. So that makes your hearts and your eyes blocked up. What does that mean? Excellent. Excellent, right? You're, you're, all you can think about is what they tell you to think about. All you can do is what they tell you to do. Right? I mean, you see this even in working class people who are not like, well, it depends, you know, your, depends your approach on things. They're either subjugated or not. But working class people, you know, like, like in the northern part of England, right? You know, there's, this, oh, there's a, there's a play like this. I went down to the mines, and it was, uh, my father went down to the mines, and my son's going to go down to the mines. And it's very bad. Going there, I, I've never been down a mine. But I understand it's terrible going down to the mines as a career choice, right? And, and there's this classic sort of stereotype of working class people sort of locked into and only able to see that's what we do. We go down to the mine. We all die when we're 42 years old of miner's lung, and we owe the company store money when we die, and nobody has any It's terrible, but that's what we see. That's what we feel. That's who we are. And we even have this sort of weird working class pride. So that's a kind of... Husatum, right? In modern you want to say someone's a little thick. Say husatum. He like he doesn't he doesn't see what his life is. He doesn't feel really. He doesn't really feel what his life is, right? Punchishvig is not exactly this. Yes, no, not bad. Yes. Oh, all black Joe certainly. Um, uh, but your shrag will leave aside. But yes, the, the pressures and subjugation and oppression of Gullus turned it into an oppression who really couldn't see beyond very simple needs and desires. You can't soar, you can't imagine, you can't dream. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's the stima that subjugation, that oppression does to you. Yafe. Yafe. Now, what subjugation, though, now our other question, happened? Yaakov died, but subjugation. What? You look in the Chobish and they're not subjugated. Not for a longish time. Now, you pointed at Yaakov, right? Yaakov pointed out that, well, we can see a diminishing of their vision. Where Yaakov is like very nervous, please get me back to Israel. And he does get back to Israel. Yosef already has no hope. He says, I mean, he does, of course, have hope, but not now. You will eventually take me, the Jewish people will eventually, he says at the end of Pasha, take me back to Israel. So that, it's a pshat, I don't know, it's a pshat, alright. But, but you're right in identifying a, a shrinking of their vision, okay. But why? I mean, what subjugation? All we know is that Jacob died. What, what exact subjugation takes place? Uh, there's a very rhetorical question. You can look all you want to do. There is no subjugation. There's none. They don't, the Egyptians are very nice. They help with the burial, and they help with the funeral, and they cry over Yaakov's death. They're really very... You couldn't ask for a nicer treatment. What subjugation? So, what I want to do is assume that all the information we need is in our text. Right? That's always a good assumption to make, because that way you don't have to know much. 
I'm saying that the answer is not, you know, not in, in some other piece of information, because how much information do we have, right? Not so much. What do we know? So let's just stick to our text. What do we know from our little tiny text happened at this stage? Don't, don't think too hard. We, we have very few, I wish I had a board here. We have very few elements here. What's the element we have here that we really haven't discussed? We explained what it was, but we haven't discussed it conceptually. The trigger of this entire drusha, the trigger of the whole concept was what again? No, no, no. The stumadis of the parsha. In other words, the, the way the Torah teaches me all that we've been talking about for the last half hour almost is that little trick with the vayigash vayichi bumping into each other. So I would like to just try out, besides that being a key, and not just a kind of a pun. Oh, stuma, 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 you know, but, but more important than just a pun, than just a word play. And to do that, y- yes, please, and then you. I'm sorry, you and then you. Go ahead, yes, please. Is it possible that um, just like the Jews in America have become spoiled and rotten from living in good, living good to work, as maybe that's what happened? It might be. I don't. You know. I don't know. It doesn't say there. There are function We talk about Eretz Goshen. It was such a wonderful place, and they liked it. It's a possibility. Yes. Right. This is on Yaakov mentioned a moment ago. There's a kind of a. They're not in charge of themselves, and certainly. Right. I, I would. I would have thought maybe more with Yosef's death than with Yaakov's death. Absolutely, absolutely. So we see these things. Good. This is all good. It's all right. But all right. Let's hang on to that. But let me. But let's do what I want to do. What I want to do is look at the stuma thing. You understand? I want to make sure you're all with me here. When I say I, I rebel against the notion that it's just a kind of a little asterisk. Stuma, stuma, think about stuma things. I don't like that idea. I want the, the lack of space to be telling me, to explain to me this series of events. The hearts and eyes being blocked up and Yaakov being unable to tell the future to his children. Okay, I want, that's what I'm after here. So let's look at another little piece of text, okay? This is, now I, I, I like, want to be honest with you. This is a stretch. This is what's called in the, in the technical terminology, this is a stretch. Alright? Turn the page over, and at the top you have the Ramban. Below that you have an, an irrelevant Shulchan Aruch. We made a mistake, and the wrong one got printed, and I didn't have the heart to tell them, so we'll just we'll look at this. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I can tell you what was the right one anyway. But first, the Ramban. Now, this is from the Ramban's Hakdama to Sefer Breshit, which is sort of, his Hakdama, I've said this before, because in, in this place I learned the Ramban's Hakdama to Shmos. See how long we've been doing this? Wow. I mean, you know, every... 12th week or so. But uh, I apparently did this around Shmos. I think it was Va'era. It wasn't Shmos. It was Va'era. Um, the Ramban wrote a Hakdama to each of the five Hamisha Chumshe Torah. They are wonderful. They're very important. You should learn them. Okay? His Hakdama to Breshit is the longest, hardest one. The others are like a long paragraph. Each. Shmot, Va'ikra, Bamidbar. They're like a very long, uh, uh, one paragraph, the wonderful, two paragraphs. The one to Breshit is a few pages. And it's in many ways a, a, a Hakdama to the Torah, and not just to Breshit. In it he says the following thing. Now, this is very much in the middle of a sentence. And we're not going to, we're just, trust me, we're not going to explain what he's really talking about. This is not our issue. He's, he's trying to explain why the Torah is written. He's trying to explain why Moshe talks about himself in the third person. If Moshe wrote the Torah, why doesn't he write I? It's a pretty clever question. If we, were, if we were not religious, wouldn't that be a good thing to stick to the religious? If Moshe wrote the Torah, why didn't he write I? God said to me. Why does he write God said to Moshe? Doesn't that smell like somebody else wrote the Torah? Huh? It's a good question, right? So the Ramban thought of this question, and he says, I'll tell you why. Mipnei the Torah really pre-existed the world. The Torah came before the creation of the world. 
Ain Sarich Lomar. So God without saying that it was before laid that Tosho Moshe. If it pre existed the world, it certainly pre existed the birth of Moses, right? The Torah like is I don't want to say eternal, but it's from before the world was created, which certainly approaches eternal. Um as we have in a tradition, Kabbalah here does not mean Kabbalah with a capital K, you know, what, you know, the Kabbalists study. When the Rabban wants to say that kind of Kabbalah, what does he call it? Derech HaEmet. Right? This, I, I, he means in our tradition. It's actually just a Gemara, Yerushalmi. It doesn't mean that there can't be Kabbalah in a Gemara, but it's a Gemara. That the original Torah was written black fire on white fire. So, Moshe Kisofer. So Moses is really like a scribe, Hamatik Misefer Kadmon, who's copying from an ancient book written in black fire on white the sort of super metaphysical well, fire is physical but you know what I mean sort of a miraculous Torah and Moshe, by writing it down with ink on a parchment or first on the Luchot perhaps is, is copying from that Torah Esh Chora Agabe Esh Levana okay now, this, you got it? And that explains why Moshe, you know, the Torah was pre-written. Even though Moshe could have changed all the Moshe's to me, he didn't, and he stuck with the original text. Okay? That's not important to us, the, the Moshe and the first person, the third person. Not important. What's important is this, and this is what I meant when I said this is a bit of a stretch. Okay? This is sort of me being clever. When you have this tradition of the Torah originally being black fire on white fire, being somewhere before the creation of the world. This is very, it's a strange notion. And one that I don't think we have to hold on to literally. Okay? But the concept, you know, because the world wasn't created yet, where was this black fire on white fire? Where did it sit? Because there's no world, there's no universe yet. So, I don't want to worry about that. I just want to look at the image. The image of the Torah has this fire. The fire is what kind of stuff in this story and in most stories? Supernatural, uh, otherworldly, right? Fire, right? Up in the sky somewhere, there's the black fire. That's what we turn into ink. And the white fire, that's what we turn into the parchment, right? In other words, the parchment has a metaphysical pre-life just as the words do. Eshchorah the parchment is as much as the ancient, holy, Torah Kadmon, the original ancient Torah, as the words, the ink. And in fact, and this could make you dizzy, so maybe some of you shouldn't do it. Uh, when, when you're reading sometimes, you could like look at the letters a little too carefully. And, and it's sometimes you're looking at, you can look at, be looking at the white or looking at the black. You know, the space the letter carves out, is, is in many ways the way our eye understands it's a letter. There's this interesting interaction between the ink you put on the paper and the paper. Uh, this is echoed in, in the way Chazal talk about the Luchot, how they were sort of carved into the stone. So it's an interesting interaction. In other words, and this is the Shulchan Aruch I wanted to bring, but we got the wrong one here. The, the Halach I wanted to bring, it's, it's, it's Reish Ein Dalit instead of Reish Ein Gimel. So if Dalit, it was a mistake. It says in a very obvious halacha that you have to have space of parchment in between each letter. A Sefer Torah has to have space in between each letter. letter. Otherwise, it's not a kosher Sefer Torah. You can't have them jumbled up, running into there. You need space. So the thing I want to say is that the thing we write the words of the Torah on has a holiness. It has an, an identity as Torah, as part of the Torah. Um, which means that if between Vayigash and Vayichi, the Torah says, this is what I want you to do. Normally, there'd be a little extra white space. No white space. We it's, it, shrink it together, put it together, shrink, erase, you know, erase, but you know, get rid of that white space. What does that mean there's a little less of? 
the white fire. Whatever the nature of the white Torah is, the white fire Torah is, there's a little less of, because of the stuma phenomenon between Vayigash and Vayichi. Now what is that white fire? It's precisely the context of the Torah. That place in which the Torah, the Torah's words, the Torah's letters, the Torah's message, the word of God can be. That's what the parchment is. Right? That's what the sefer, the white, the white fire is. It's the place for the Torah to be. And so, when the Torah says, this is the tradition, right by Yigash and one right next to the other, like a run-on without space, it's saying what happened now in the history of the Jewish people, with the impending death of Yaakov, is an erase, erasure, a getting rid of, a destruction perhaps of, some of what that white fire is. In other words, the space on which the Torah can be. In other words, Yaakov, for the Jewish people in Egypt, represented, and here I'm, I'm in many ways agreeing with you, Yaakov. Yaakov represented a context for the Jewish people's content. How so? As some people have said, they're down in Egypt, in a totally foreign context. They have their traditions, they, have, they know whatever they know, from Avram, from Yitzchak, from Yaakov, the twelve Shvatim, they teach it to their children. There is some sort of Jewish tradition, there is some sort of Abrahamic, Yitzchak, Yaakov tradition, and that's the Torah that they have until then. And its context is embodied, its white fire is embodied by Yaakov. Why by Yaakov? Because he's the one from Eretz Yisrael. He's the one of the Avos. He's the last of the Avos, the last of the patriarchs alive. The minute Yaakov dies, there is no link any longer to that white fire, to that context for our Jewish content. He's the link. And when he dies, Stuma, when he dies, there is a closing of a connection that the Jewish people had that made a context for whatever the Jewish concepts, content might have been. I'll give you, I want to give you an example. It's an example that's, uh, that I thought was like dear to my heart, and then someone wrote a song about it that became famous. I guess it was dear to a lot of people's hearts, right? Which is, I don't know, a good thing. You, know, you feel good, you feel not good. You know, I thought that was my emotion. But on the other hand, you feel good that other people share the emotion. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I, both my grandparents were, both my grandfathers were alive. Um, and for some strange reason, we called one grandfather Zadie and the other grandfather Grandpa. And it's interesting that the grandfather we called Zadie was born in America. He was born in 1899 in America. The other grandfather was born in, uh, I think, in or around Warsaw, and came to the States in the early 1900s. But him we called Grandpa for some reason. And uh, it's not nice to say, maybe I should turn the thing off. And we were much closer to Zadie. He was a more gregarious kind of guy, and, you know, we were closer to him. Uh, he also lived much longer. My other grandfather, unfortunately, died when I was in Papa Mitzvah. So, um, and even though he was born in America, he was for us, you know the song I'm talking about? There's a song written by, I think, Baruch che, Moshe Yes, Baruch Che, Zaydi used to this, Zaydi met his land, right? When I first heard that song, I like, wow, that was really... Because for people in my generation, there was this connection to a different Jewish world. We grew up in America, in an American world, which is pretty Jewish. I, mean, I went to day school, and I, I think I knew one non-Jewish person, to be very honest with you. I grew up in Far Rockaway, and everybody knew it was Jewish. But still, it was very American. And that whole world of the Yiddish newspaper, and going to Hasidic Shtibul, which my grandfather did, was very much like a link to a Jewish context that America did not, and to a certain degree does not have. I mean, I was, you know, you, you go to Crown Heights, you go to Borough Park, you go to, there are a lot of places in America where they seem to fake it pretty good. It feels very Jewish. So, so I don't know, maybe you can do that. Maybe it's doable. But, bigadol, broadly, what happens in Galut, what happens in exile, and I think all the people who spoke earlier were very right, that the Egyptian exile is starting to kick in now. 
with the death of Yaakov and the Shiabud. Remember our question, where are they subjugating the Jews? Well, what a nasty thing to say about this generation of Egyptians. They didn't do anything. Wait another generation until they start subjugating them. No, it was passive. The Egyptians didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was be Egyptian. <laughs> they had to be Egyptian. And, and, and no one could help, none of the Jews could help, but be subjugated you know, a golden gullus perhaps, I don't know, by the Egyptian context they now found themselves in, and it was Yaakov's death, because he was their last, when you buy Saba Yaakov, so no, Israel, Canaan, Avram Yitzchak, right? So, so you're not so much in Egypt, but that context, that white fire, that place where the Jewish heart and mind can sit, shrunk with the death of Yaakov. And so the Torah shrinks itself. Not words. We're not missing words. There are all kinds of midrashim about missing words in the Torah. You know, the Torah could have said it this, but it said it shorter. The Torah meant to say this, but it cut out a few, you know, to get there quicker. We're not missing words here. We have missing white fire. We have missing context. And that, I think, is, the death, is, is, is really the death of Yaakov. The death of the Jewish people's can it really feels that way. When, you know, if, if we're really, if we're all sitting down, see, that's how you know you're like in a serious shia. When the guy who's giving the shia is sitting down, then you know it's serious. This is, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to, your part is serious, my part's not so serious. But if we're sitting down, right, we all have the books in front of us, we would look and we'd see the end of Vayechi, it like runs. It like, we had such a long, very beautiful, very brilliantly written, the first great short story, a lot of people say, this Joseph story, every detail, every emotion, I mean, it's really, and all of a sudden, bang, 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 Yaakov dies, Joseph dies, all his generation dies, there's like this headlong rush, and then the minute you start Shmos, it's like you're in a new world. It's, oh, it's so Egyptian. All of a sudden, it feels so different. Where's Avram? Where's Yitzchak? Where's Yahweh? Where's Canaan? Where's Marat HaMachpelah? It's all gone. It's all gone. The minute Yaakov is on his deathbed and drawing his last breaths and dying, it's like some connection, some imagined context. Because it's an imagined. They're not there. They're in Egypt. They're not in Canaan anymore. But some emotional context is taken from them. And that is best symbolized by shrinking the context of the very Torah. Yes? Now, the next piece of the Rashi, that Yaakov wanted to reveal the future. And that was also... Oh, and I just want one more sentence. So, of course, their eyes and their hearts are blocked. Because they can no longer feel as, as Jews. They can no longer see as Jews. They no longer look the same way at the world. I once, I once said this word in England. It was like, oh, I know what it was. It was a limud. You ever hear limud? In England, it's always around Christmas time. So it was around now, right? And it's not 100% true, what I'm about to say. But I was lucky. The shul I was in had all frosted windows, right? And in Yushalayim, usually the windows are not frosted. Now, it's not 100% true. There are regular windows in some shuls in Chutzlarets too, but it, you know, it worked for my purposes. I said, in, in Yushalayim, the windows are not frosted because there's not such a big difference between the inside and the outside. We want to see what's outside. It's part of what's inside. We, our eyes are not... We don't want to like shut out the context here in London, you're in a shul, you shut out the context so that you can imagine Yerushalayim Yircha, Uvena Yerushalayim, you can like see something different. Right? So when Yaakov died, they couldn't see Yerushalayim. They couldn't see Eretz Canaan anymore. So there was that. Okay? Now, the bit about Yaakov not seeing the future, the piece about that is I think the same, it's the same thing. When Yaakov feels that he's about to die, and he knows he's about to die, he calls his sons to his deathbed to give his last words. The future is taken away from him, but even perhaps more importantly from his children. He can't tell them the future because of the same, the same dynamic. There's a... If you're out of your context, 
if you're out of your, your fish, out of your Jewish water, it's impossible to see what's going to happen next. It's impossible to feel, to envision. It was just as the Jewish people couldn't envision a kind of a backwards, a connection from Yaakov back to Yitzchak, to Avram, to Eretz Yisrael. There's a kind of reciprocal inability to really see what's going to be. It's, it's fascinating how uh, uh, overwrought uh, uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora are about what's going to be. The future, continuity, are we going to have Jewish grandchildren? Now, I'm not saying that we don't worry here, Baruch Hashem, we have plenty to worry about here about the future, but it, it's different. It's, I, think it's, I think it's very different. And I think Yaakov's inability to talk to us, it was, it's not so, I think the important thing is not so much that he wasn't vouchsafed the prophecy, I think it's more he wasn't able to talk to his children about the future. He wasn't able to tell them about the future because of the same, you know, that same a lack of context, I can't see back and I can't see forward either. I, I, I don't know, I don't know where we are, I don't know what's going to be, who knows? You know, here in Israel, in spite of everything, you know, it's like, in many ways it's all about the future. In many ways it's really all about what are we doing, what's going to be, how are we going to do, in, in and I think in a, a more productive way than the kind of uh, um, a lack of a sense of what's going to be when you're out of context, out of your, you know, out of your, off your page, as it were, to go back to the image of the, of the, uh, the missing space on the Torah scroll. When you're off your page. So I think the two, the two concepts sort of really reciprocate. They really talk to each other. The notion of Jewish people being denied a connection to their context, their past, their connection to the larger Jewish picture, you know, the place where Judaism sits, so to speak, and then Yaakov's inability to therefore discuss with them, so what's going to be? They're sort of locked in this, as, as you said earlier about subjugation in general, you're sort of locked in this constant present. This constant, I just got to, you know, pick up this bale of hay. I just got to put this block of stone up. I just have to, you know, get my piece of matzah and eat it and go to sleep. And, this, and, and whether you're being subjugated that way or being subjugated, as we're talking about here, in more subtle ways, in, you know, by a, an oppressively successful culture, right? You know, everyone in the entire world is oppressed by American culture. You can like it, you can enjoy it, but it, it, it demands your attention. It demands of you to think certain ways, eat certain foods, say certain things, dress a certain way. That's, it's oppressing you all the time. So when that's happening, it's difficult to see a way out of that to a different, perhaps, past and to a different future. Yaakov. That's good. Okay. Uh huh. Okay. I have to see it. Um, any more comments, questions? I... No. We're good. Okay. Um, that's really it. <laughs> so good evening. Pardon? No, no, for sure. Think, look, I don't want to be, I don't want to be simplistic. It's not as if everything here is good and everything here is bad. You know, right? We we know that. We know that. Um, but there is, and, and you know, this is why people think Israel is special. You know, because I think, you know, you heard a birthright. Right, you had a birth. I, I don't know. I don't work with birthright. I don't think anything special about it. But I spoke to a few people who've been and people who work for birthright. It's a, a nice nigle. It's a miracle. It's not. It's not a very good program. I don't want to be nasty. It's, it's not a very good program. They bring them here and they have fun for ten days. And a girl I know said to me, my cousin, she went on a serious program. She, she went on a program I do work for. And she, my cousin went, and it was crazy. Ten days, drinking, drugs, girls, boys, that's all. The, he comes home and says, I want to only marry a Jewish girl. It's crazy. It's the craziest thing. I went sat on a plane next to a girl who's coming back from birthright. She stayed like two days extra. She's coming back on her own. The birthright, from, I don't know, somewhere down south, nothing. Who knows if she's Jewish, halachically, right? You know, the real, real story I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. What, what? I have this non-Jewish boyfriend. I, 
I don't think I can keep being with my non-Jewish boyfriend. Ten lousy days of having fun in Israel. The craziest thing. And what it is, is that something about the, the context, not the content. They don't teach them much. I mean, your birthright is a very broad, very, very broad church. You can go with Chabad, you can go with Pardesh, you can go with Hillel, or you can go with, you know, uh, Teen Tours runs uh, 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 birthrights. And really just go scuba diving. I mean, really. And it's, it's like a miracle. And I think, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on uh, promoting miracles. But I, th- so I think there's a real reason for it. I think the reason is that they sense a context that is so richly Jewish in terms of history. In ter- I mean, I heard a guy, uh, I, was with, I was with a group in, uh, in Washington a few weeks ago, a group of Israelis in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. And we had an APAC representative come and talk to us. We do this every year. And the Israelis never get it. Why, if you love Israel so much, come live in Israel. Why do you spend all your working hours, all your Israel, 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 and bothering the poor United States government to give more money to Israel? What's the matter with you? Make all the hours. Shut up. The Israelis like, don't get it, right? So this is a young guy, and they said to him, were you ever in Israel? He says, yeah, I was, I was there. How much? What? He was there for one summer trip. And that's it. He works for APAC. He signed on for life. I mean, who knows for life? But he's working for APAC. And these guys were like plotting. What? What's so special about Israel for you? You're only there five, six weeks, whatever it was. Why do you love so much? He says, you don't understand. I walk down the street in Tel Aviv, and I see these arfsim, you know, these uh, juvenile delinquent types, right, talking Hebrew. It just drives me crazy. I just love it. Now, we've been here a long time, and we're not so excited about them talking Hebrew, right? Uh, but the, the fact that we have succeeded in creating such a rich Jewish context, where Hebrew is a big piece, right? Part of the reason it feels so Jewish is because we succeeded in getting people to talk Hebrew. It's terrific. And it's an embarrassment for all of us that here we are talking English. Shame on us. Terrible thing. But, but, this is, it's a job that we have done very well. History did it for us. You walk around, there's all the Jewish things, and we keep doing it. We make it feel like this very rich Jewish context. And that, I think, is very important. And I, I think, you, you know, it's also one of the reasons why Israelis are so popular as educators in America. And why they send Israel, uh, American kids to Israel for ten days. You know, it's just getting a little feel of that. Is it, it puts you in a whole different place, literally. It puts the person, and that's, I think, what this lack of place at the beginning of Vayachi is all about. Shabbat Shalom.